Turn with me to Matthew 18 for our study this morning. Have you ever noticed how fun it is to be resentful? To hold a grudge against somebody? It makes you feel powerful, like God. Stand as judge over that person and to withhold mercy. It gives you just a, a good gut feeling to feel that you're getting back at somebody by for what they've done to you by your being unforgiving? Or could it be that such initial feelings of delightfulness and having an unforgiving spirit are all a sham? Could it be that we're deceived? Indeed, I think that is the case. At first, it does seem like it's nice. But in the end, whenever we're unforgiving, we find that we're the ones who really pay. We experience pain, bitterness, the joy in life flees away and we experience instead frustration and rancor and and malicious feelings. Instead of having loving relationships that are satisfying and enjoying life where all of our emotional energies are focused on these negative experiences. And it does seem that we are the ones who pay for it in the end. We want to look at this passage and see the teaching of Jesus Christ about forgiveness. Let's begin at verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. In verses 15 to 20, Jesus had been talking about how to deal with sin within the the fellowship of the church. He says there, if a brother sins against you or somebody else, you're to go to him out of love and concern for him and confront him with the seriousness of his action. You desire that he not be caught up and entangled in the, the snares of sin. Take it lightly and be further entrapped in it. And if he repents, you've won your brother, he said. But if not, because you love him, because you know that he needs to take this seriously, you take one or two witnesses with you, two or three witnesses, to confirm every matter, to confirm what's happened, to confirm that his deed was a violation of Scripture, not just your personal prejudice, and to confirm that sin is serious and must be dealt with. Well, if he still refuses, then Jesus says you're to bring the matter before the church so that we together as a church can convince this brother or sister that it is a serious matter. It's nothing to be taken lightly. And if he still refuses, Jesus says, then let him be cast out from the fellowship of the church, excluded from the fellowship of believers. So he'll have to face up to the seriousness of that action. Well, Peter then asks the question, Lord, what happens if he does repent? If he asks for forgiveness... And I forgive him, but then tomorrow he does the same thing over again. And I forgive him then, and he does it again the next day. How long should I let this go on? Should I forgive him seven times? Peter was probably being gracious. He was probably thinking of the rabbi who said that you were to forgive somebody three times. And after that, you're not obligated to forgive any longer. Peter probably thought, well, I'll double that and add one for good measure, and then I'm sure to to be as gracious as I should be. And Jesus says, No, Peter, not seven times, but seventy times seven. 
Now, we all know that Jesus is not meaning for us to take him literally, that we just up the limit to 490 and then we cut somebody off. It's just a figurative way to say that our forgiveness should be without limit. I shudder to think how many marriages in the uh, within our midst, mine included, would be destroyed if we only gave a person seven failures, seven offenses, and that was all. Or even if we gave 490, how few of us would last a year or two? A week or two for some of us. <laughs> Depends upon how perceptive we are about one another. Well, Jesus says that love is to be without limit. Forgiveness is absolutely necessary for those who are his followers. And then he tells a parable in the next verses to explain himself further. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, there was brought to him one who owed him 10,000 talents. But since he, did, since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment to be made. The slave, therefore, falling down, prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. The Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, and he seized him and began to choke him, and saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell down and began to entreat him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. He was unwilling, however, but went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you entreated me. Should you not also have mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? So his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you, if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart, from your heart. Now this parable is a story in three acts. In Act One, the king forgives the slave for the large debt that he has incurred. In Act Two, the slave fails to forgive his fellow slave for a much smaller debt. In Act Three, the king takes the slave, the first slave, he cancels the remission of the debt and throws him into prison as his just dessert. This slave who, who owed the huge sum evidently was not just an ordinary slave. He was evidently a governor or satrap of some large region, a province. Because the amount he owed, 10,000 talents, was worth, worth a huge sum. The marginal reference in the New American Standard says it was worth about $10 million. And yet it was much more than that if we understand how long it took to earn $10 million in those days. The average working man earned 18 cents a day. And to earn $10 million would take 55 and a half million days of work. In other words, if you started uh, working 
about 150 B.C., you would still not be finished, uh, 150,000 B.C., excuse me, much larger than that, 150,000 years before Christ, you would still not be finished paying off that debt today. And a sum of that size could only be contracted by a, a, a man who was a governor of a province, one who apparently had sticky fingers. And as the monies passed through the royal treasury, a lot of it stuck to those sticky fingers. And the king apparently pulled a, a surprise audit on his slaves. The governors of various provinces brought him in, found out that this man owed him this huge sum. And at first, because he was angry with them, he wanted to at least get something back for what he had lost. He decided to sell him and his wife and children into slavery to somebody else and at least get a, a penny back per thousand dollars that he lost or something of that sort. But then the slave falls down and says, Lord, have mercy on me. Be patient and I will repay everything. Obviously an absurd statement in light of the, the enormity of his debt. But the king was moved with compassion and he did more than the slave asked. He didn't merely give him an extension on his credit, but he canceled the debt altogether. And then upon leaving, the slave goes out and he apparently hunts up a fellow slave who owes him a much smaller amount. To, to us, it would seem like a large amount, 100 denarii. Denarius was 18 cents. would be a day's labor. Uh, 100 days' labor would be a pretty good sum for us, and yet it was insignificant compared to what he had been forgiven. And he grabs the man by the neck and starts choking him and saying, pay back what you owe. The man responds in, in almost the same words, be patient with me and I will repay. But the slave who had been shown mercy was heartless, threw the man into prison until he could pay back, which was doubly cruel because you can't pay back very well if you're in prison. You have no earning power. The king was reported uh, by the fellow, fellow slaves reported to the king what had happened. He grabbed the man and he was irate. And he said, how dare you be unforgiving to somebody who had done so much less who had a small debt to you when I forgave you for the huge sum. He said, all that you deserve is to be thrown into prison. And he handed him over to the torturers. For many of the prisoners of those days were torturers and they would torture their prisoners to find out their secrets where they had hidden the money that they owed and such things like that. And Jesus applies the parable in verse 35, so shall my heavenly Father also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. There are three points I'd like to make about this passage. <clears throat> the first is that to fail to forgive is to insult the grace of God. The second is that to fail to forgive is to invite the judgment of God upon ourselves. And the third point I'd like to make is that forgiveness, so it may seem out of our reach, is entirely possible. For us who are believers. God has forgiven us. The king obviously represents God. We are the slaves. And like the slave in the story, we have been given a sphere of responsibility. We have made, been made governors or sub-rulers under the, the rule of our creator king. 
He's given each of us a sphere of responsibility over which to rule in justice and righteousness and with love and service towards others. That sphere of responsibility includes our own personal life and character and all of the relationships that we have with other people. He has commissioned us to reflect his character in our character, to be his representatives in each of those relationships in which we find ourselves, in our home, at school, at work, at play. And yet we have thumbed our nose at God. We have the impudence to scorn his just claim for absolute lordship over our lives as our creator. We have said, God, I'm going to run my own life. And then we have the audacity to think that whenever we do any nice thing for God, that we're just doing him a favor, failing to realize that we owe him our total life, and we owe him total good and a total response every minute of every day. We fail to see the enormity of our offense against God, like the slave who had had, uh, built up an unpayable debt So we have built up an unpayable debt to the holiness and justice of God. Even if we were to do millions of good deeds, we could never make up for the debt that we have to God. Even if we were to spend an eternity in hell, we could still not pay off the debt that we owe God how little we understand his mercy. In spite of such a debt to him, God has extended to us not merely an extension, but a total cancellation of our debt. He says if we merely come to him in repentance, turning from our rebellion and say, Lord, I want to make you the Lord of my life now, and as we reach out and accept the gift of salvation and trust our eternal fate to the effects of the death of Jesus Christ who died to pay the penalty for us, then God cancels our debt. But what an offense, an insult to that mercy of God if we then receive that tremendous mercy which he gives to us and we're merciless to somebody else. We withhold forgiveness to somebody who has offended us. Oh, but you don't know how badly John offended me. What he did to me is is so bad, it's so horrible, I could never forgive that. Well, it may seem like that to us, and things seem like that to me at times. And yet, the offense that another human being does against us, even when they're willfully malicious and spiteful, is insignificant compared to what we have done to God. It's the difference between 100 denarii and 10,000 talents. The difference between what would take 100 days to pay off and what would take 55.5 million days to pay off. To fail to forgive another human being for anything that he has done to us, even if spiteful, malicious, and repeated, is an affront and an insult to the mercy of God. Not only is it an insult to the mercy of God, Jesus says, but it's uh, to fail to forgive is to invite judgment upon ourselves. Let me read to you again verses 34 and 35. And his Lord, moved with anger, 
handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. He says if we fail to forgive, God is going to hand us over to the torturers in judgment. Now this could have one of three different interpretations, three different meanings. passage could mean that the judgment is eternal, and that we who are Christians will lose our salvation if we don't shape up and forgive people. Now that would fit the context of this passage very nicely. The problem is it wouldn't fit the rest of Scripture. And whenever you interpret a passage, you need to fit the facts of the passage within its own context and also within the larger context of Scripture. Jesus says in John 6 that on the last day he will raise up all who have believed in him. Not one will he lose. So we can't be lost because we've been unforgiving. And John 10, he says, No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. My Father is greater than any. The devil can't make us do some sin that's so horrible that, that we will be snatched out of God's hand because of it. Well, another possibility is that the judgment is eternal, but those who experience a judgment are not true believers. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 and following, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, in your name cast out demons, in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. In other words, Jesus is saying there will be many in the last day who will say, I called upon the name of the Lord. I did many religious things. But he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. Your life was never changed. It's not that we earn salvation by changing our lives. But if we have salvation, we're born again. We're made anew. We're new creatures. And our, the new life has to be reflected in our character. And if it's not there, it shows we don't have it. And it could be that Jesus is alluding to this by saying, if you don't forgive, my Father will not forgive you. I think, though, that we have reason to believe that he means uh, uh, something different yet. The third alternative in interpreting this is that he could mean that the, the judgment is temporal rather than eternal. We as believers experience, but it happens right now rather than for all eternity. And I think we have good reason to follow that interpretation because of what Jesus says in Mark chapter 11. Let me read verses 24 and 25. Here he's teaching his disciples on prayer. He says, Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they shall be granted you. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your transgressions. He says there that if we fail to forgive others, God in some way is going to fail to forgive us, and the result will be that our prayers will be hindered. They'll be rendered ineffectual. If we want effective prayers, we need to make sure we're forgiving everybody so that our relationship with God won't be clouded. Jesus is alluding here to the teaching he makes more explicit in, in John chapter 13. There he says that 
that we as Christians, we, we as people need two kinds of forgiveness, two kinds of cleansings. There's a cleansing that's once and for all, the forgiveness that we receive for the guilt of our sin. Once we've received that, there's, there, there's therefore no condemnation that will come to us. We have guaranteed our eternal inheritance with God. The other kind of cleansing, he says, is that which we need daily. We walk in a sinful world. We fall. And the, the marks of, of sin uh, affect our lives. And he says that we need to confess those. Uh, deal with those so that we can have forgiveness from God and cleansing. Let me illustrate it this way. If a man and wife uh, offend one another in some way, the relationship is not severed by the sin. They're still married, but the relationship will be affected by the sin. They're not as close. Or if a child and a parent, it's the same thing. They're still, the relationship is still there, but the relationship will be hindered. The same way, when we sin, our relationship with God becomes clouded. And until we confess it and deal with it, then He doesn't forgive us and then wipe out the the effects of that sin from us. We still have our salvation, but our relationship is hindered. I think it's this forgiveness that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 18. When we don't forgive others, Jesus says, God hands us over to the torturers. And we are delivered over to the torturers to experience the torment and the pain of bitterness and resentment. We give up the joy in life the peace of mind. We exchange all of those for for rancor and anger. We're filled with negative feelings and we're not happy. We can become depressed and full of self-pity as we wallow in the mire uh, uh, of self-pity, worrying about, feeling sorry for ourselves about all the wrong that this person has done to us. And whenever we are resentful towards somebody, when we hold a grudge, we withdraw forgiveness, then in some way we want to punish them, whether consciously or unconsciously. We want to get back. And yet it's part of the judgment of God that though we're trying to punish them, we ourselves are the one that are, ones that are punished the most. Most of the time when we're resentful, half the time at least, I would say, the other person doesn't even know it. We're holding a grudge, feeling bitter within ourselves. The other person doesn't even know anything wrong happened. Do we punish them? No. We're punishing ourselves. And even when the person realizes it, most of the time they slough it off. Well, he's too, insen- he's too sensitive and, and uptight anyway. I'm not going to let it bother me. And this is from the hand of God. It's part of the judgment that we experience as we fail to forgive others, he hands us over to the, to the torturers, the tormentors of negative feelings so that we can experience the just deserts of our hard-heartedness, mercilessness. Whenever we fail to forgive, we invite this judgment of God upon ourselves. It's part of his discipline that really comes from love so that we can experience the effects of sin and turn from it. But I try to forgive. And I just can't do it, we say. Well, I have good news for you. We can do it. I don't care how badly that person has offended you. I don't care what they've done. 
how malicious and cruel and spiteful and unjust they were, you and I can forgive. Because in this passage, Jesus Christ commands us to forgive in an unlimited way. And all that he commands, he also enables us to perform. We may feel that we can't do it, but inasmuch as he commanded it, we are able. Now we might say, well, okay, I'll forgive, but I can't forget what he has done to me. Yet that's not what he's talking about. Verse 35, Jesus says that forgiveness must be from the heart. To say, well, I forgive you, but I can't warm up to you anymore after this, is not true forgiveness. True forgiveness that Jesus is talking about is total, it's complete, it puts the matter away and doesn't hold it against the person to any effect, to any extent whatsoever. And you can warm right up to the person again. Jesus says that forgiveness is absolutely necessary for the Christian, and it's also totally possible. Now let me share with you four things that help me to forgive other people. First one comes right from this passage. I try to remember the fact that my sin is much worse, my offense against God is much worse than the way that I've offended this person, or this person's offended me. As we focus upon how bad, badly they have uh, uh, injured us, then it's hard to forgive. But as I remember that what I have done to God is much, much worse, then it takes the intensity out of my negative emotions. We withhold forgiveness because we're self-righteous. So you think, oh, I would never treat somebody like that. And yet as we realize that we have treated God in ways that are much worse, maybe not in the same ways, but ways that are much worse, then it takes the wind out of our self-righteousness. And it is much easier to forgive. Second thing I find is if I reinterpret the circumstances and the situation from God's perspective, then forgiveness becomes not only possible, but often downright easy. How you interpret a, uh, a situation makes all the difference as to how you feel about it. I can be roughhousing with my kids and throw one of them across the room and you know, bonk on their head and, and uh, maybe moan for a minute, but get right back up and say, hey, let's do that again. But if I simply reach out and tap one of them on the hand and discipline, I get oceans of tears and loud wailings and you'd think that I'd kill the, the child. The difference is in how they interpret the pain. The pain from the wrestling is much worse, but it doesn't have the same emotional content and interpretation. And therefore, it doesn't bother the child. How we interpret the offenses we receive from others makes all the difference as to how deeply we are offended and how easy it is to forgive. If our interpretation runs something like this, I am an important person and I have my rights. I have a right to be treated fairly, kindly, lovingly. And this person was insensitive to me. How could they ever do something like that to me? If we interpret the situation that way, it will be very difficult to forgive. But if we reinterpret the situation from God's perspective, then forgiveness flows. Let me give you a couple of examples. Joseph was treated 
maliciously by his brothers. Out of petty jealousy, they almost killed him. Instead, they delivered, they sold him into slavery, and he uh, uh, spent years in prison as a result of that in Egypt. And yet, we read in Genesis chapter 50, when they were back and reunited with him, uh, they were, were scared to death about what jo- Joseph would do. And when Jacob, their father, died, uh, they made up a last request of his, thinking Joseph can't deny the last request of a dying father, and said, Dad said for you to forgive us. Joseph says, don't worry about it, brothers. I know that you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to preserve many people alive. I know that you were evil in what you did, and yet God was behind all of this, bringing me to Egypt so that I could eventually become prime minister so that I could preserve the life of our family by bringing you down here and preserve the life of millions of Egyptians through the, the management of food to, to be able to weather the famine that was coming. Because he interpreted the circumstances differently than they, forgiveness was easy for him. Or take the Lord Jesus Christ. He certainly was one who had a right, we would think, to be resentful and unforgiving. People wrongly accused him of blasphemy and sedition. They mocked him and spat in his face and beat him, ridiculed him, and finally hung him on a cross to die. He could have said, oh, those awful people. I was trying to reach out to them and love them and serve them and teach them about God, and this is what they've done to me. Get them, God, for all they deserve. But instead, his response was, Lord, Father, Forgive them. They know not what they do. He forgave because he saw the divine perspective. He knew that what was happening was an essential part of the plan of salvation. Without their hideous deeds, he would not have been delivered over to death. He knew that his act would would procure the salvation of mankind. And also, as Hebrews 5.8 tells us, that the Son... Though he's a son, he learned obedience through the things he suffered. It was also essential for his own spiritual growth to go through that. And therefore, it's easy to forgive. When we gain the divine perspective and realize that we have a good and loving and sovereign God who's behind all circumstances, as Romans 8.28 tells us, and who is gearing all circumstances to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ, as the next verse tells us, then we can, as James says, rejoice in our trials. We can actually rejoice when somebody does us wrong because we know that that person is is acting within God's plans for us, to build us, to make us into selfless people, to make us into people who trust Him, who are patient, who love, even when love is not deserved. You know, it's, it's hard to uh, forgive to not forgive somebody if you see them as being a tool in the hand of God. It seems rather silly to say, praise God that you're using this to build my life, but I hate you for being part of God's plan. And as we see God's perspective, then forgiveness really flows from the situation. But there is a catch. We do need to believe that God is good and sovereign, and we do need to believe that our own spiritual growth is to be valued above our ease of circumstances. 
But once we accept those things which God says are true, then forgiveness can come rather easily. Third thing that I've learned in matter of forgiveness is to realize that I'm involved in spiritual warfare. So frequently we respond to another human being as if it's just a, an interpersonal conflict. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in the uh, heavenly places of wickedness. Behind all of this is we have a satanic enemy. And one way that he gets us is to make us feel that we have to respond according as we feel. For instance, I feel resentful, so I just have to be resentful. I'll pray about it, and as soon as God takes away the feelings, then I guess then I can forgive. That's the way we often respond to, a, to an offense. And yet what we need to realize that we, we have a, a devilish enemy who is approaching us with a temptation to be unforgiving. That temptation is not the same as sin. It's not something we just have to do. We can resist the temptation. Secular psychologists tell us that when we're, we're angry, we have two options. We can express the anger, and they want to teach us how to do it in ways that will be least offensive, or we can repress the anger. We can, bot, we can push it down, deny it, bottle it up within ourselves, and then we're going to finally explode. Well, the New Testament says we have a third way. Paul says in Colossians 3, we can put away the anger. We're new creatures in Christ. We have new power. We can turn to him and find his power to put that away, to recognize the temptation to, to anger, to resentment, as uh, something that, that is a temptation and something we don't have to accept. We might feel like it. We might have always done it that way. We don't have to give in. We have new power in Jesus Christ to resist the temptation and find a spiritual victory. Fourth aid that I've found to forgiveness is praying for the person who has done me wrong. As I pray for that person, then I'm serving him and loving him. And it's pretty hard, it feels pretty hypocritical to be serving with one hand and ready to punch the guy out with the other hand. And so as I serve the other person through praying for them in sincerity, then the emotions, negative emotions I feel, are sapped from me. I find that praying is probably, for me, more effective than simply doing something for the other person because I can do something and still have the resentment within me. But I can't pray for the other person. God points out the hypocrisy of praying while I'm still feeling resentful and not dealing with that. Jesus Christ says that total absolute forgiveness without limit from your heart is an absolute necessity for us who are believers. To fail to forgive is to insult the mercy of God. To fail to forgive is to invite God's judgment upon ourselves. We will be delivered over to the torturers of negative feelings. And we ourselves will receive the punishment due us. And we can forgive if we will realize that we've done much worse to God. And we realize that 
we need to reinterpret the circumstances from God's perspective, see that he is sovereign, and even the evil of this person is part of his plan for my spiritual growth and my good. As we realize that we're involved in spiritual warfare and resist the temptation, don't give in just to our natural feelings, but are strong in the power of Jesus Christ. And as we pray for those who have offended us, then we find that forgiveness is not an impossible dream, but it's something that's within our grasp and can be experienced in its fullness. Let's pray. Father, we realize that we have deeply offended you. We, like this slave, have incurred a huge debt to you. We're totally unworthy of your love and your forgiveness. And yet we thank you for the depth of your mercy towards us. Help us to understand this more fully, Lord, so that we can forgive others as well. Be merciful towards them. We often feel they don't deserve forgiveness, and they don't. But you give us the power to respond as you did to us. Give us what we don't deserve. Thank you that we do have power in Jesus Christ to reflect your character and your grace. We give you our lives afresh now that we might do the same. In Jesus' name, amen.